what's up, S31? Welcome back to what's shaping up to be the hottest podcast on politics in town. And boy, do we have some special guests today. Today we got our legislative director, one of the members of Team Jackson, Mr. Matthew D. Levy, and from the Oyate Group, Jason and Sorrell. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Doing well, Edwin. Thanks. I mean, I mean, I bring all this energy. You guys are like doing well. Come on, come on. Let's try again. How are you guys? What's up? We're doing great, man. We're happy to be here today. There you. Happy go. Saturday. You know, I'm I'm out here. I'm doing really, really well. The snow's melted. Everything's good. Psyched to be here, Edwin, as usual. There you go. That's that's the energy that we bring in. What's up, thirty one? All right, guys. So let's get this rolling. Um, first of all, it's Black History Month, February, the turn of the calendar. Um, we're definitely here um, to celebrate and honor and elevate those before us who have done the work and paved the way for communities of color in this country, um, indelibly part of history of this nation. And today we find ourselves not only acknowledging the history, but understanding there's still a lot of work to do. And that's um, part of what we're going to be talking about today, the work. Um, I'll start off with a team member, you know, I'll be a little bit biased. Let me start with my, with my homie. Um, and Senor Matthew D. Levy, um, he's the legislative director for the office of Senator Robert Jackson. But before we jump into anything, um, can you just tell us what the heck does a legislative director do? Definitely, Edwin. It's a great question. You know, I am the legislative director for the man, the myth, the legend, the one, the only Robert Action Jackson. And in that capacity, what I do is I help craft and shape his vision into legislation. So, for example, when we're interested in pushing legislation, let's say, concerning Black History Month and Black History, we have a bill that would do just that. It would move the Amistad Commission, which is in the Department of State, into the State Education Department so that New York State schools actually teach Black history the way they should. And it incentivizes educators to do just that. So my job is to take concerns that he has, concerns from the community, and help craft that into legislation. For example, we have a bill that's a huge, big, groundbreaking piece of legislation. It is the Solutions Not Suspensions Act, carried with Assemblymember Kathy Nolan, that would transform the way we, we help our students. It takes a more holistic approach to understanding what's at stake and to end the the school-to-prison pipeline, we shouldn't be suspending students and ex expelling students. We should take a holistic approach to address the issues and the needs and the concerns of our students in our schools. And in that vein, we have a companion piece of legislation, Senate Bill 1969, carried with our great assembly member in, from Queens, Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas and Team JGR, that provides for social workers in every school to address concerns about their mental health you know that's mental health is part of an education and our students they're just people just like everybody else everyone has issues and concerns and we need to make sure it's properly they're properly addressed so my job is to push and advance pieces of legislation that we have but at the same time it's also to be wary about what's in the new york state budget you know we have a budget that's 216 billion dollars this year and that's a lot so I go through the budget and we talk with our great chief of staff, with the senator, and we try and figure out what are the funding priorities to help advance all New Yorkers and make sure everything that we can possibly do is being done. And that's pretty much what I, pretty much what I do. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Um, talk to me about priority bills that the senator has on the table now. Um, I heard something about 1997A. That's the nurse overtime bill. You already mentioned um on the school solutions not suspension act uh the other day Aaron made sure that we that's the name of the uh, of the bill um but we also have other bills on um, you know there's a bill for that addresses the need for resources for students um in school who have um who have the need to have the um what was it the extra resources for reading and informing and stuff like that uh, Matt is the dude that works with the, with the bills. We just ask him what it is. And this is why I'm, I'm fumbling over the words because he's the one that's going to give us some insight into it. So please just bring him up. 
Sure, yeah. I am the uh, legal eagle in the office, if you will. I am an esquire, as one of my colleagues in our office calls me. So you talked about a great piece of legislation. It's S-1997A, which is a nurse overtime bill. You know, I, one of the things that I do is I, I write a lot of these bills. And so this bill provides that nurses that are into forced overtime, that in situations like that, the hospitals or the entities that do that will get penalized. A first violation is $1,000, a second violation is $2,000 fine, a third violation and subsequent violations are $3,000 fines. And this is so important because now what we see is that during the pandemic, see the pandemic just took, it just put a spotlight on all the problems in our society. And so what it does is it says that if you're forcing nurses into overtime, which they're, which you can't really and shouldn't do now there's going to be a penalty for it and there should be because they are frontline workers who we rely on right it's really important and it's a bill that many labor unions are behind so you talk about the next bill which is a i believe it's that's s 1926 that's right it's about dyslexia now you may not know this but i have dyslexia and i'm an attorney it was a big feat you know it's a big accomplishment for me because there's a lot of reading you have to do. So this bill provides that we create curriculum-based legislation and strategies to help students with dyslexia. You know that one in five people are roughly diagnosed with dyslexia? It's probably even higher for how many of those who are undiagnosed. Mayor Eric Adams talks about it a lot, how he was undiagnosed and he wasn't able to excel in advance until he was diagnosed. That's the case for many, many, many students. So we, this legislation is created to address this issue, to ensure that we have strategies in place in schools to really help students who have learning differences. There's another bill um, that I also want you to speak quickly about, and it's S-1969. Sure. S-1969 is one of well, we have a lot of great pieces of legislation, but it's one that is getting a lot of traction. And in fact, the governor this year announced uh, putting more mental health counselors in every school. And it's based off of this piece of legislation. This bill is, as I said before, carried with uh, Assembly Member Jessica Gonzalez Rojas from Queens and her team, Team JGR. And it provides that every single school district have at least one mental health counselor, like a school social worker or a school psychologist, to be there for the needs of students. You know, students, just like everyone else, comes in with, they have certain issues in their lives. And sometimes getting help is really important. You know, it's really, it's really important that we emphasize that not being okay is okay. Getting help is important. Seek help when you need it. And, the, and that's a resource that, that this will provide, that, that will ensure that when a student comes to a professional social worker, a school psychologist saying, I need help, I'm having problems at home, I'm having problems in school, I don't think anyone is listening to me, that that person is there to really help them and to make sure we can get them on the path so they can really unlock their true potential. All right, so that's the work. And that's the work that the Albany team, how we like to call them, um, is definitely doing up there um, to make sure that we pass these bills. Again, we spoke about there is a lot of work to do in order to achieve social equity and social justice. And these bills, you know, they, they point to that direction in every form and way, specifically um, when it comes to working class communities and communities of color as well. Um, but we also want to ask you, uh, Matt, when you're in Albany, um, speak to us about the fast pace, because um, this man, every time he's up there, he just texts that he's going crazy and he's losing hair. Uh, and for those out there who don't understand the dynamics of, you know, not only of politics, but definitely of of the work that an office has to do. You know, a lot of these offices, there are severely understaffed. And yet, you know, there's not enough hours for us to fulfill our duties. Um, so sometimes it's good for people to have an insight to this because it's, you know there's no such thing as a magic wand. We wish we did have one in order to be able to um, you know to do away with a lot of the things that 
were here pre-pandemic. And as Matt, you know, stated before, the pandemic just basically you took the veil off of a lot of things. And because it gave people an opportunity to see it because there was a pause, only now is that you see this big upcry about many things that we've been screaming and talking about for years. Uh, give us a little bit of insight what, how fast-paced, how grueling it is up in the political circus or the political arena in, in, in Albany. No, you got it right the first time. It is a circus. So Albany... When the legislation legislature is in session, I like to call it it's organized chaos. Before the pandemic hit, in a 15-minute span, the senator and I would be in a committee hearing, a press event, a a um, a conference meeting, and meeting constituents all in the span of 15 minutes. It was crazy. Now, what it's going on is it's that same craziness. But it's virtual, you know. And so now in Albany, we're in the midst of budget hearings. And these budget hearings can run for 10 to 12 hours, sometimes longer, because we're dealing with a huge $216 billion budget. So what it looks like is me sitting in front of a computer watching the budget hearing and for ones that the senator is participating in, making sure that he's going to ask the questions that are really important for his constituents get those answers that they need you know what does funding for schools look like what does labor protections look like what about civil service issues now that he now that senator jackson is the new chair of the civil service and pensions committee so the craziness still exists but it just went from being in person to being virtual nothing really changed but you know perhaps even worse because now because it's virtual it's like it, it you really have no free time or downtime. Oh, absolutely. I mean, free time and downtime is a myth. Like, I would love to have 15 minutes, but sometimes I'm working 26 hours in a 24-hour day. But that's that's the craziness of it. But that's okay because I enjoy the organized chaos that it is. And some people will think I'm weird for that, but they'll also think I'm weird for entirely other reasons. You could definitely tell Matt as a lawyer. You know, he said 26 hours in a 24-hour day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's bring on our other friends and our other guests here today, the Oyate Group. Um, definitely, um, it's an honor to have you guys on. You guys been doing the work for quite some time now. Um, this, and I'll let you tell the history of how this came about, but this started out of the necessity of knocking doors, and then eventually it's just snowballed into some huge machine. And by machine, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I mean a wall oil machine is really trying to do the best for it our communities. Um, go ahead, guys, jump in. I want just, <coughs> sorry, thank you, thank you, um, uh, Edwin. Before before I even get into Oyate, I want to say it feels good to be here to know Matt because we've worked for months now and because it's so cool, sometimes you, you could work with someone, you don't even have the time to speak to them. I've, I've watched him, you know, diligently do his thing. We work together. We communicate when we need to communicate. But now I could clearly say I know what he's doing. You know, I know what he does in, in Senator's office. And it's, it's cool. I love I love you. I, I will not do what you're doing, but I love it just by listening to it. You know, so, um, yeah, Oyate, Oyate is a family. You know, we started as, as a, a group of friends supporting um, our brother run for Congress. And while he was running in the middle of pandemic, um, the pandemic hit and in his, in his compassionate and empathetic heart, he decided to stop his campaign to raise funding to, to help, you know, to help uh, alleviate the issues that were going in the community. And that's Thomas Ramos for you, you know, he, he's, he's a very fast thinker. He's someone who will donate the shirt on his back, you know, for someone else to be better, you know, and he, he just pulled us. He said, guys, we're stopping this campaign thing. It doesn't matter if we win or lose, we're going to help. You know, and he went down to his friends, uh, our donors, raised some funding, and then we started uh, donating money to hospitals to expand the, the ICU capacity unit. That was the first thing. And it just started as just a group of friends trying to help. You know, we, knew, we know what community we are in. We know the Bronx. We know that we are always the last to get the resources. Sometimes we don't get them at all. So um, Thomas just said, you know what, we're going to cut the red tapes, cut the bureaucracy, we're going to do it straightforward. And that's how we started. Then um, that was phase one. Then the looting happens. When the looting happens, he 
raised another funding and he went straight into the to the small businesses and assisted them into you know getting back on their feet with checks direct checks you know small businesses non-profit organization and that's how the the, the vision started growing you know when we did that we're like you know what we could do more and now we say okay let's come as a as oyate group bronze create the bronze rising initiative to work on this officially as a 501c3 and that was that was the birth of uh, of oyate group the bronze rising initiative i'd like uh, jason to continue. if i may ask before jason speaks what does oyate mean so uh oyate is a lakota sioux word um meaning uh the people um you know when uh and the story goes when when trying to find uh lenape you know, the lenape were the original um indigenous population here in new york um couldn't find a word couldn't find a word that meant the people because the lenape, the lenape language is almost extinct um and so the next best thing that came up with was um oyate which is more widely known because of the lakota sioux and their um yeah so folks we we have a call that just came in it's a special call and it's from the man himself senator action robert jackson go ahead you're, you're on hey how's it going uh it's uh pretty cold out here but everything is going well so i'm just calling in and wanted to you know listen to what's going on and tell you what's happening up in albany uh, which uh, you know it's uh, the budget season so we were in budget negotiations now and as far as uh, hearings joint budget hearings and so things are happening uh, but not like it used to you know before you had people with rallies up there press conferences and uh people would come in and lobby us in our offices now the legislative office building is still closed to all the public and the only thing that's open is the capitol uh but hardly anyone come up to albany because uh you cannot come into the legislative office building to lobby um assembly members and senators uh, but a lot is getting done Uh, the Black Puerto Rican Hispanic Asian Caucus held a press conference on February 1st at the beginning of Black History Month in which uh, uh, all of us wore black uh, with uh, our mask and everything. And, uh, and so it went very well, talking about the major issues that impact our community. Obviously, uh, What's most important is people are staying in their homes and, and are not evicted as a result of the ERAP, the uh, Emergency Rental Assistance Program, uh, running out of money. Um, and also uh, now we have uh, homeowners uh, crying about uh, their situation. Uh, and some of them uh, own uh, two and three family homes and some of their tenants obviously uh, have had a negative impact as a result of the pandemic and that just causes them to possibly uh, not pay their rent and also the homeowners down are behind in their mortgages and so this is a, 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 a domino effect overall and obviously um, the importance of that and uh, we talked about gun violence and uh, you know eliminating the gun violence and that's all over the news especially with our mayor and the The, the recent shootings and killings of uh, Jason Rivera um, and Wilbur Morrow. Uh, in fact, uh, talking about that subject area, we, the, the Northern Manhattan Gun Violence Task Force is having a press conference tomorrow uh, and a walk uh, from the Amistad School, which is located at between Academy Street and 204th Street and Broadway, where Jason Rivera went to school when he was young. And we're walking straight down Broadway to the police station, stopping there, uh, and then going down to Wheels, and that's the school in the Eleanor Roosevelt Education Complex on 182nd Street uh, near Audubon, um, saying a prayer there uh, for all of the people, uh, and then walking to Uh, I think 176th Street near Wadsworth, where an individual was shot and killed uh, in the lobby of his building where he lives. And so uh, I think that people are, are tired of people being shot and killed and people are standing up and saying, we have to stop the gun violence. These are major issues that impact our community. And if you look at majority, all of the killings 
from people with illegal handguns uh, and or other type of weapons. And most of the people that are being shot and killed are people of color. And I don't want anyone to be shot and killed at all or injured. But our community, our communities, we're killing ourselves. And so we have to stop that. And part of the process is people rising up and saying enough is enough. And we're going to take matters in our own hands in order to um, uh, try to eliminate this gun violence. So those are some of the things that we've discussed overall, along with obviously climate, health care, um, those are the things that impact all of us. Uh, you're right on cue. Um, thank you for bringing up the fact that we will march with the Uptown Community Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. Uh, but we also have the Oyata group here. And, and I'll let Jason announce that uh, because we're going to partner up with them and we're going to do something specifically on directed at the gun violence. Go ahead, Jason. Okay. Jason, well, I'm, I'm all ears, ready to listen. Uh, great having you here, Senator Jackson. Um, and just thank you for always lending your support to us and just collaborating with us. So, um, you know, from our team to your team, um, you know, we're just deeply humbled to continue this partnership. Um, but with that, uh, what we've established uh, is uh, bringing uh, in December of um, 2021, we actually did a gun buyback program in the borough of the Bronx. And it was really successful because there were 75 firearms which were um, collected that day, and and are, are you know are, and obviously they're being dismantled. And so what we've done in collaboration with your team is we're actually bringing a gun buyback program to um, Washington Heights here on March 5th, and that Excellent. was done. Yeah, and that was done through obviously you know your team, Joanna, Edwin, um, everyone else, and uh, you know they put us in touch with uh, DA Bragg's office was very ecstatic about this and also yeah. with the NYPD and, and their um, division as well. So we're really ecstatic that we've brought all the uh, stakeholders to the table in order to get this going. Um, and, and, you know, Oyate's goal is to bring these gun buyback programs regularly to our communities, to our neighborhoods, uh, not just uh, in the Bronx and Uptown, but also throughout the course of, of the entire city. Um, so we thank you for your continued support in, in doing this work. Well, let me thank you and Ayate Group for uh, putting this together. Teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, and obviously, Jackie Rowe Adams, who is the founder of a group uh, that's called Holland Mothers Save. These are mothers initially, but now there's mothers and fathers who has lost uh, relatives, mainly their children, to gun violence. Jackie Rowe Adams has lost two sons to gun violence at different times. And so they deal with the the grieving and uh, also supporting legislation in order to try to eliminate these guns off, off our streets. So uh, I know that she's going to be very, very pleased when she hears that. And I'm glad that we're partnering with the DA of Manhattan, uh, Alvin Bragg, uh, in order to do this along with your group and, and all of the people in Northern Manhattan. So uh, that's exciting news, obviously. And the governor is also has been involved in uh, helping to deal with gun violence by one, um, uh, uh, partnering with groups in the community as far as uh, the, the uh, uh, trying to work with the, the, the groups that are, are dealing with uh, getting guns off the street along with uh, getting youth employed 18 to 24 getting jobs and also trying to make sure just overall that we are educating our children how important it is that they remain safe so uh, all right that's what they're doing all right senator thank you so much for calling us um i will go back to speaking to the ayata group and your legislative director who happens to be here joining us today as well Okay. Um, because you already took too much time from their shine. <laughs> right, thank you. Take care of yourself. Uh, I will listen to it now. All right. Thank but, you. All right. Bye now. Bye. Yes. So that was Senator and, you know, Robert so, Action Jackson. So to add to that, just really quickly, um, you know, just the, the gun buyback, it was actually, um, it came from an idea. And I'm going to let Cyril explain a little bit of that idea because uh, he's more closely connected with it. Yeah. So, so if, if Hendrix uh, lost her son, Brandon Hendricks, a basketball player, graduate, high school graduate, um, young kid who was who had a few promising future, very very intelligent and and, and uh, 
he died on a senseless gun violence so his mother became an advocate you know she's out in the community always speaking against it and we partnered with her you know we created a mother's promise which is a, a an initiative that's run by her by by eve and, and us the oyate group to create you know events like the gun buy back like uh, basketball games uh, you know anything we can do in the community to get back those guns from from the street you know we do it in in uh, in in collaboration with her now it's become becoming bigger as any other initiative that we've created at the Oyate group we start with just a little vision and then it grows because anything you do from the heart you know anything you do to serve is going to grow because we we have to bring the resources out there and you know th- that inception of that idea actually came from the Brandon Hendricks Scholarship Foundation um, and so the scholarship foundation over the course of the last uh, two years, we've doled out, see, close to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. To, to about uh, 20 plus um, young students, people, yeah. um, first time um, uh, 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 college students. Um, so, you know, that's where that idea was born out of. And like C said, as long as you uh, marry these ideas, we're going to be able to do great work uh, with each other um, because all it starts is just with that little inception of that idea. So. And it's rather interesting, you know, talking about this issue because our office in the Senate had been really passionate about getting guns off the street, so much so that the senator actually wanted to and did introduce legislation to address the iron pipeline to stop the illegal flow of guns into New York State. And so if if you know about the iron pipeline, it runs up I-95 and one of the major dumping grounds for illegal guns in New York State is right here in yes. Washington Heights. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And it's a real problem and it's a problem that the senator is really trying to tackle. And it's interesting you say that because I remember Jason sharing um, some of the experience that the Oyate group had with their um, gun buyback um, initiative in December. Yeah. And it, one of the things that actually um, caught Jason's attention, and, I, and I'll, I'll let him speak to that, was that the guns that were being returned to be bought were not from community members, but from outsiders. Yes, sir. Right. You know, the, the demographics of what uh, the Oyate group uh, initially thought, and, you know, several's laughing because we actually thought that. And, and so just to set the, the table a little bit, um, the gun buyback was done at uh, Butler Memorial Church. Um, which is in uh, Northeast Bronx. And, um, you know, so it's right within a working class uh, black and brown community. And we expected, or our expectation rather, was that um, there will be many community members from the surrounding neighborhood. We have a couple of housing uh, projects um, that are in, you know, walking distance or close by. And so our expectation was that, you know, black and brown folk, working class folk will be able to come in and drop these guns off and would get, uh, you know, the payouts which which we gave them were five hundred dollars for um uh, walking handguns yeah handguns uh 150 dollars for um uh, shotguns and then 50 dollars for air pellets or imitation guns and they weren't given in in cash they were given in, in gift cards and so uh you know due to that um we expected that there were going to be more um of these folk but there were actually you know more caucasian folk or folk from outside of our neighborhoods that um that you know that dropped these guns off which is not an issue in by itself but we are creating these resources within our community in order to um really tackle or alleviate the issues so that folk can have cash in hand no questions asked and that we're able to really provide the resources within our communities rather than going um you know out and about that's very good one of the things that um that the oyate group and the office of senator robert jackson have been doing together um has been providing a way for folks in district 31 to get vaccinated to get their booster shot or or the first or second shot as well uh talk a little bit about that initiative as well yes yeah, so again another phase of as i was saying earlier the the, the, the fourth phase was third phase third phase that we got into was the vaccines you know and we 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 january of 2020 with this uh, 2021 we decided to you know roll out a a mobile unit of vaccines out there so we we, we did knocked at doors knocked at uh, 15 almost fifteen thousand doors we registered senior and elderly people for, for to receive their vaccines and we brought the vaccines in their community center so it was very successful we vaccinated almost 35 to forty thousand people out there you know and and then now when everything started slowing down we said okay we're going to take a mobile unit to the 
we take a mobile unit to the community where we're going to actually meet the people where they are because remember in our community we had a lot of vaccine vaccine hesitancy so we, the easiest way to give people the vaccines we had to meet them where they are so we 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 created that and it worked and then now it was easy for us to partner with different community leaders elected officials and everything and that's how we partnering with uh with senator jackson's office which is a very you know uh successful partnership and our, and our first event that we had together was in washington heights and we were able to get 70 people 70 people yeah, vaccinated 70, yes under the snow yes sir under yes the sir snow. it was snowing that day it was a very memorable day the two, the, both of our teams it was the first time we we're working together for that particular event but it was there was such a synergy in everything that we're doing and and we got 70 people with a mobile unit out there and vaccinated. let it be known that we we have traveled around district 31 we went to harlem west harlem we also went to um, the Upper West Side, and we were in Inwood as well. And we will continue to partner up to, um, you know, continue to have these vaccines available to our community. But I, I also now received a special call. Earlier, we received a call from Senator Robert Action Jackson. He spoke a little bit about a few things that are going on in Albany. But now we have the chief of staff, the fierce leader, Joanna Garcia, who is on the phone as well. Joanna, say hi to the boys here. Hi, everyone. Hey, Joanna. Hey, Joanna. How's it going? Hey, I just always want to say that, uh, of course, I have fear. Yes, I have fear. <laughs> All right. So, Joanna, we had Matthew speak a little bit about his work as legislative director. He spoke about a few bills. Um, there are a priority for the senator. But I, I want you to speak about something that's very important on this week. And I saw that and I read it on the e-update. And, and again, for all of you out there, please sign up for the e-update. Make sure to read up so you can see what Team Jackson is doing. Uh, there was a specific letter that was sent out to the governor. Um, and I want you to speak to that. Um, so those folks outside who have yet to read know what that letter is about. Sure. Uh, so for context, and, and I know many um, have already heard this, but... Uh, Senator Robert Jackson walked 150 miles to Albany um, over a generation ago and more recently in 2017. So he walked 150 miles twice um, to ask the governor's office and the state legislature uh, to finally uh, owe up to the campaign for fiscal equity promise, which is, is a, a lawsuit that was filed on behalf of all New York State students because they were being shortchanged and a lot of money was owed to our schools, to our students. Um, and we had generation of students go through, uh, through school uh, without those adequate resources. Uh, but last year, uh, we finally got that money. Um, and I actually walked myself um, in 2017, those 150 miles. Uh, and let me tell you, uh, I didn't think it was possible for you to get a blister on top of a blister um, because uh, it didn't matter if you were tired, uh, you're on the road, you just got to keep walking. Uh, and But we met up with a lot of generous uh, folks along the way. Uh, so we finally got that money um, through the legislature um, last year. And this year, as we're looking to pass a budget that will meet the needs of New York State uh, residents, we see that there's a trend and we're about to, um, again, phase in the Campaign for Fiscal, fiscal Equity money, which many refer to as foundation aid on a state level, on a city level is uh, fair student uh, funding. Uh, but what we're seeing is that a lot of the money, the majority of that money, it's actually going to go towards charter schools versus public schools. And what's going on is that because there's a tuition increase on the charter school side, coupled with the fact that in New York City, only in New York City, thanks to an agreement made between Governor, then Governor Cuomo, and Eva Moskowitz, the leader of Sussex Academy, uh, New York City has to pick up the bill every time 
a charter school opens up in terms of startup and pay for the facility. So pay for for the pay for the rent of charter schools. Uh, and and because of that whole duality between paying the t- tuition increase and paying for rent for charter schools, the money that we won, the money that Robert Jackson walked for 150 miles for with parents, with students, with educators is coming in. But in New York City, that majority of money, it's not actually going to go to the students in public schools. It's going to be diverted to charter schools. So the latter is telling Governor Hoku that he didn't walk 150 miles twice so that public school students can get shortchanged yet again. So we're asking her to revise uh, that uh, formula and to end the practice of paying for uh for rent for charter schools. All right. Thank you for that explanation. Um, Robert Jackson also spoke about an event that we are going to have. By the time folks hear this podcast, it had it will be done. But I, as the lead organizer, I want you to speak a little bit to the folks listening to this podcast about the initiative that will be unveiled um, under the cold weather in a press conference and the march that proceeds after that? Uh, so since this will be post uh, the march, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all those that brave the cold <laughs> to walk with us uh, and stand with us in solidarity. Uh, so late uh, late last summer, um, in response to the uptick of gun violence and many constituents um, talking to us, about uh, just not feeling safe in regards to gun violence in their neighborhoods. Um, I, um, with the full support of the Senator and in conversation with him, uh, brought people together, constituents, uh, community leaders, community-based organization representatives to talk about how, what are our thoughts around gun violence. Uh, But before really getting to any action items, we did a lot of deep work in understanding what public safety means to all of us. And it wasn't a pro-cop or an anti-cop conversation. It was a very community-centered conversation because what we all could agree is that gun violence is hurting all of us. Um, And we wanted to see how, as a community, um, we can be at the table and and push uh, initiatives uh, and policies that we know works. Um, And the overarching theme, of course, was investment in our communities. Uh, We spoke a great deal, of course, about violence interrupters. We want to make sure that this is about being preventative and and being responsive um, and certainly not reactive. Um, When reactive policies come into our communities, our black and brown communities, uh, they're incredibly punitive uh, to communities that have been marginalized, neglected, and have been asked to go um, without. Um, so this is a task force that's now asking that we stop being without, that we actually invest in after school programs and youth programs that we assess um, where uh, we need more and where we need to scale up and that we center the voices of our youth that are um, impacted um, by this crisis, by this public health crisis. And so what we are doing is a three-pronged approach, um, uh, and that's just initiating, and and it's completely community-informed. The first thing, of course, is that we know that there are resources, and I can tell you as a mom um, raising three kids, I didn't always know what was out there for my kids, and I, I also didn't always know how to advocate for more in my community, because it's not just about looking out for your own. Um, We want to be a community that looks out for everyone else. That's actually how we're going to be healthy um, in in all respects. Uh, So, so, um, the first part is letting people know that there are resources, how to access those resources. And that's closely tied to assessing where those resources are and where we need to advocate for more. So we're, we're going to have a QR code. We have a QR code, um, and it's a list that is constantly being updated. Uh, so that includes um, a, a, a great deal of outreach that we plan to do. Uh, the second thing is um, the Youth Arts uh, Showcase. Again, we want to center um, the youth voices, and we also know how, com- 
how completely transformative the arts can be uh, in curing trauma and in also communicating what people want to communicate. They, they can't really do in everyday language or, or words. And I know that personally, as someone who went to art school uh, and uh, used art really uh, through my own grieving process uh, when my father died. So this Use Arts Showcase will involve us reaching out to all the young people um, in Inwood and Washington Heights and asking them to provide um to submit to us us being the center's office and the task force um what their thoughts and feelings are on gun violence and this could be in the form of a dance a song a poem a skit spoken word however that artistic expression is we wanted to come in uh, and then that will culminate in an event that we will put on for everyone um to really showcase that that expression of what uh, gun violence means to them. And lastly, but only temporarily, I say lastly temporarily because we do intend to keep doing more and more and more, is getting guns off the streets. Um, and how and what we're going to do is and, and it would have been announced at the uh, press conference is that we are partnering with the Oyate group, aka Bronx Rising, aka Uptown Rising. Um, to host a gun buyback program um, in the Heights, uh, but it's open to, of course, both Inwood um, and and uh, and the Heights and Harlem. Any, we just want the guns off the streets, and we are also partnering with DA Alvin Bragg uh, on this project. So again, those are the three projects under this task force, and it is only the beginning, and we are only going to uh, be as strong as the community voices in our task force. Well, thank you dearly, uh, our chief of staff, Joanna Garcia. Thank you for jumping on. Um, I'm going to continue talking with the boys here because they, they they keep signaling me that they also want to talk. <laughs> and, you know, between the senator and Matthew, they have yet to speak a lot. <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> I know the feeling, by the way. I know the feeling. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you for calling in and um, keep listening. All right. I will. Take care. Bye. Bye. And on cue, um, someone just walked in, too, who happens to be part of the Ayate group. Um, he's the head, the leader or the CEO of the organization. And we just want to welcome Tomas Ramos to What's Up S31. What's up? What's up? What's up? Uh, I'm a little, I'm a little late, but uh, I made it. You know, so I'm happy to be here with, her, with all the guys and just having a great conversation. Yeah. So they basically gave us like a brief history of the group, um, but you know, you're here, so we want to hear from your mouth as well. Uh, so the, the Yatte group was actually uh, initially um, founded in 20, 2018, uh, but we you know, really didn't do anything with it because we decided instead uh, to uh, to run for Congress. Um, so it's kind of it was just doormat uh, with with we didn't raise any funds. We weren't doing anything. Um, but then when the pandemic uh, hit, uh, that's when I decided to basically activate it and start raising funds um, through the Yatta group. And I started uh, the Bronx Rising Initiative specifically to, uh, you know, combat COVID by uh connecting hospitals with, you know, private donors and then uh, doing some small business relief over the summer um, with um, businesses that were affected by not only COVID-19, but uh, the looting that occurred in the Bronx as well. One of the things that's very important that I always highlight when I speak to anyone out there um, <clears throat> who has yet heard of, of the work of Ayate Group, which is not that many because you guys, but, you know, you're doing your thing and you guys are up there in the air. And by the air, I mean all over the place and in the media and stuff like that. But one of the things that I like to point to always, of, which is very impressive, was the work that was done during the peak of the pandemic. Specifically, um, the funds that you guys were able to generate and acquire through donations and other people who were willing to help hospitals in the Bronx, St. Barnabas Hospital, um, I think it was Lebanon as well, and whatever other institution that I might have missed. I want you to speak to that because of this, um, you actually 
um, honor at the Dominican Gala last year during the summer. Uh, we happened to bump into each other there. We had a few drinks and we spoke a lot. We spoke a lot about you guys too, behind your back as well. Um, <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about that um, because that's very important to always remember um, and to always highlight because it shows how we've stated before very delicately how fucked up it is that the Bronx continues to lack when it comes to resources, although they have elected officials, although they have a lot of organizations, and yet it took a pandemic to motivate other people to want to do something because it tore down the veil. But there was one group that was specifically really doing something, and that was the Oyate group. Yeah, and uh, what, what I always say about the pandemic, unfortunately, it highlighted uh, all of the deficiencies within government and also just really highlighted uh, just the the lack of uh, readiness for when something like this, uh, the, the whole, whole country was like that, but the Bronx in particular, when it comes to uh, accessing resources in an equitable and, and accessible way, uh, we, we just, from day one, you know, I, I saw uh, that we were going to um, really, really get hit hard and and our community, which the Bronx is ranked 62 out of the 62 when it comes to the unhealthiest county in New York State. Uh, so it was really inevitable that uh, we were going to get hit hard and our community was going to suffer the most. Uh, so what what we were able to do was uh, uh, call, I literally called St. Barnabas Hospital. That was one of the first hospitals I called uh, and asked them. Uh, what will it take for you all to increase, you know, capacity when it came to ICU beds? And a lot of people didn't know that this actually, you know, for you to increase capacity, you need resources. Um, I always, I always say that, I always say this that there's, you know, these hospitals don't have a line item that says pandemic relief, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just never happened. <laughs> so that, you know, so they, 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 it's just not there. It's non-existent. Um, but we, what we knew is that they, they needed you know, uh, access to just cash, literally just cash as quick as possible uh, so they can uh, hire more nurses, doctors, and then the actual the equipment uh, that goes, uh, you know, with that, these ICU beds. So uh, St. Barnes Hospital got back to me relatively quick, uh, sat down with them. They, you know, uh, sent us a proposal that essentially would have doubled their ICU bed capacity. Uh, and it was for $1.1 million. Um, and at that time, uh, Oyate Group was existence, but we weren't, I was actually a candidate as well. So I didn't want to do anything through Oyate Group. So I created an initiative, uh, which was a Bronx Rising initiative. And it was specifically, I, I, I connected donors um, uh, and, I, and, 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 and with, with the hospitals. And then within 24 hours, once we went through everything they you know we uh you know they wired them the hospital the money directly but then at that moment in time that's when i saw well you know we're gonna need uh you know community's gonna need help you know long term uh so even after uh we help with the hospitals how can i make this sustainable uh and then that's when i said all right let's uh let's activate oyate group and then uh later that summer we started uh, seeking funds through a Yata group and then through there was our first, our second initiative was uh, the small businesses you know um, and then we just started building building that out and then we uh, moved on to uh, vaccines uh, and I think you, you all probably touched you know a little bit about it um, and initially our main uh, what we were going to do was just increase capacity as well we're going to work with one clinic and and just uh, help, you know, with with funding uh, per diem nurses, uh, just operations in general. I always say there's 1.5 million people in the Bronx, and e even if the Bronx would have had 1.5 uh, million vaccines, they just don't have the infrastructure in, in place uh, to get those vaccines out, uh, you know, accordingly. It's just because you need nurses, you need, you know, higher operations, you need, so all of that stuff needs to be uh, really spoken about because people don't understand that uh, this stuff costs money, you know, and personnel costs money. Um, and then the other part of it is uh, clinics. Uh, a, lot, a lot of our low-income communities are, are, are relying on Medicare and Medicaid. Um, you know, hospital, hospitals, clinics that are, uh, you know, predominantly Medicaid and Medicare, you know, their patients are, are, are so they, they're, they're only getting reimbursed $17 uh, per, per the first vaccine. Uh, when our estimates were that private health care, uh, you know, private health um, companies uh, were paying upwards of anywhere from 50 to 100, you know, uh, 
and that's a big gap, you know, if, 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 if you know, uh, hospitals in a wealthier community are getting um, reimbursed, you know, $50 for the first vaccine, well, now they can hire more uh, per diem nurses and they can ramp up operations. And when, you know, our low-income community clinics and hospitals are only getting $17, uh, that's a big difference. So we, we understood that early on. Um, so that's why, you know, the economics of it uh, just didn't make sense to us. Um, and then from then on, then we, we started to see another uh, issue, which was, um, you know, the digital divide. And then also uh, a lot of our, you know, f community are. That's interesting with that, the digital divide. Speak to me about that, because I know you guys have, have a very um, important initiative that's very interesting. Yeah, well, so it's 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 simple. I always I always ask people like their abuelas and like I know my grandmother. Uh, she 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 can't she doesn't have an iPhone or she didn't have an iPhone, and uh, she wasn't she you know couldn't go uh, online and 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 make an appointment to go get a vaccine. Uh, she didn't have, you know my grandmother did not have Facebook. No, <laughs> no, no. She was a, she was a little older. You know she's a little older. But uh, but the, you know the, so the reality. So you're talking about immigrant community. That's older. That has you know pre-existing health conditions. Uh, that we need. These are the most vulnerable uh, of people. So we, um, so we we identified that issue. So we did what we decided was to do outreach, knock on doors, uh, sign people up, and then bring the vaccine literally where they live. You know, and this is before the city or, or the state decided about the in-home vaccination yeah. initiative. Wait, well, they, the city didn't even start, uh, and I, they, they, they say they did outreach, allegedly. I still have yet to see their, their outreach efforts. But nobody was knocking on doors uh, anywhere in New York State uh, when we started in January um, and doing the outreach. And then we did the first pop-up in uh, New York City public housing in uh, senior slash community center. Um, yeah, but, yeah, so we were, we're, we're a grassroots organization, so we understand what our communities need and and uh, our outreach efforts was what really got us attention, uh, international attention and, uh, you know, national attention as well, because uh, they, they saw what, you know, you guys are actually knocking on doors and bringing something to the community. And, you know, I, I, I didn't really understand why I got so much attention. But then later on, I just saw that uh, the government, uh, this is where that lacks a lot of um, just really they're 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 not understanding what really goes on in the community and then when you have the governor that wants to just come in and hey just trust us and take these vaccines well no they don't trust you all that's why there's hesitancy within you know black and brown communities you know so yeah yeah so it's it's definitely um it's no it's um it's worth understanding that these initiatives that you guys um put in motion I mean, let's just be real. You guys were kind of like trailblazers. You know, the whole gift card thing. You were doing it before the city started doing the gift cards for to get people motivated to get vaccinated. Um, not that people should be motivated with a gift card, but unfortunately, we know the world we live in, and it wasn't an incentive. Um, it's worth noting that, you know, these are young guys. The three of them sitting in front of me are very young. Um pushing forward these initiatives to benefit their community and they're, they're doing a self selfless act which requires a lot of work so it has to be you know it has to be recognized it has to be celebrated um you didn't understand it at the moment but it's very understandable as to why it got the attention that it got real quickly what's in the horizon what's on the horizon for oyate group that you could speak off of course yeah uh so an, another piece uh, that we understood, and I learned actually um, when we were doing the small business relief and, and giving grants to small business owners, is that our, our, our first and foremost small businesses are, are the backbone of our community. You know, um, so a lot of these small businesses have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, and they weren't able to access some of the grants uh, and, and PPP uh, monies that was out there because of just they don't have their books in order. They don't have, you know, the infrastructure. They need support in, in other aspects, maybe legal. Uh, so that's something that we that I got to learn while we were doing uh, the small business relief. So moving forward, we, we want to launch. We're going to launch a, a program focused around us uh, support for our small business owners. Uh, what what does that look like? We're still gathering all the information by meeting with small business owners and asking them 
Uh, what are the, some some of the gaps that they, 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 they that they have encountered with, with whether it's a city, state, or federal government that they are looking for resources for, and also connecting because there, there are programs out there that do support small businesses, but a lot of our small businesses just don't know how to navigate that, don't know how to go online and, and literally just check up. And and, 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 and also there's a, a language barrier too with a lot of them. So uh, organizing our small businesses and really uh, empowering them uh, by, fo by focusing on if they need accounting help, if they need legal help that we're here to support in those efforts. And also, uh, it, it, you know, uh, with micro grants again, because some small businesses uh, just need a little helping hand every once in a while. Uh, to get over the hump, you know. All right. Um, as always, the doors of the office of Senator Robert Jackson are open so we could, you know, collaborate on those efforts as well when you guys create that pilot and have it up and running in, in the Bronx. For sure, let's bring it into District 31. All right, guys. So now we're going to go to the fun part. I mean, we had enough fun already, but we're going to go to the part that's a little bit more fun of this podcast, um, which, by the way, it is a podcast strictly about politics. But Everyone out there must know that we are humans and there is another side to us. So I want to touch this little segment. It's called Fun Facts about our guests. And I just want to talk about these things that, you know, people don't know about you guys. Um, for example, I know Matthew is a huge New York Yankees fan. Um, I know for a fact that's a real, you know, audiovisual, you know, it's his thing. And, you know, you and I, we connect on that too as well. Jason, I don't really know what's good about him, but what? <laughs> uh, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. <laughs> and I know for sure that Tomas likes to dance salsa because Tomas and I, we happen to be in the same place hanging out and dancing salsa as well. So I'm just going to roll it to you guys. Um, fun fact, Matt. All right. So, you know, I am an avid Yankees fan, but the fun fact I want to share. Well, obviously, I'm not a fun person. So let's just get that out of the way. We know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Shame. a Met fan. So, yeah. So you're not. Wow. Fun. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> The fun, one fun fact about me is that I'm an avid traveler. Uh, I've been to over 35 states in this country. I am going to go to the next 15 before, you know. The next uh, pandemic. That's the next pandemic. But also I've been to Asia. I've been to Europe. And I have to check off on my list Africa, South America, and Antarctica at some point. All right. Tomas. Uh, so you kind of already said my fun fact is, uh, you know, it is dancing, but. You only you you've only seen the salsa. I also can crump. I can also. <laughs> what the hell is crump? What, what's crump? What? Yeah, what's crump? I, I, what's oh, crump? Listen, that's that's early two thousand. We, we don't believe early. <laughs> that's early two thousand. You know. <laughs> if there's no videos and social media, I, don't <laughs> I can crump a little bit and uh, you know all around hip hop, um, you know, and obviously all the Latin uh, music as well. But I I, I was a big uh, back when like you know I'm talking about you know Dipset. Early 2000, you know, I, I used to go. I used to go. wear those 4XL T-shirts, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, the, the colorful fitted with the do-rags. Uh, as, long <laughs> as, as, long as, as long as as long as you weren't trying to pull off the, the crisscross, you know, backward <laughs> jeans, that's okay. Uh, uh, so I, that, that's a fun fact. I, I used to uh, really be into hip hop and, and uh, thought I was uh, dip set back then. All right. all right, Jason, the man from Queens. Go ahead. I'm, I reside in Queens. All right, I reside. In, I'm originally from it's the Bronx, South, South Bronx. Right, exactly. Um, so I, I'm an avid um, music appreciator um, or enthusiast, if you call it. And what I've recently picked up is um, vinyl, um, and specifically Indo-Caribbean vinyl, because I am uh, I'm Guyanese, which means I'm you know my ancestors are from India. But we exist in the Caribbean, and a lot of our records um, are just recordings. Um, are you know there aren't many of them, and so what I've done just because my parents' generation, you know, they they you know they, their records have been destroyed or, or lost, and so uh, I've put it upon myself just to kind of um, become almost like a museum of just like old school Indian records, um, Indo-Caribbean records rather, um, and so. I've started that hobby and now I've moved into, you know, to, to dancehall specifically because I'm a big dancehall fanatic. Um, and now I'm moving on to like uh, classic rock and hip hop. So, um, yeah, collecting records has been my thing as of the last uh, year and a half. So if there's a silver lining in the pandemic. That was it. Such a hipster. <laughs> Freaking gentrifier. All right, Cyril. Yeah, so audiovisual. Talk about that. Yeah, you said it. You said audiovisual. But most people don't know that I'm an actor. Fun fact. Oh, wow. uh, I'm on Netflix. You could check out Master of None, uh, season two, episode six. I'm one of the. Oh, you're on there? Yes. Wait, that was you. <laughs> 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 I 
No, that, was, that was another African guy, all right? That was another African six. guy, right? I think I've seen that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Season two, episode six is called New York. I love you. Most people see me behind the camera doing documentaries, going to Africa to film movies and everything, speaking about it, empowering people and everything. But acting is something that I've I loved. I've, I've done it. I've been acting since I was a child. But when I moved to the U.S., I, f- I found you know the competition in hollywood very unhealthy and i was like you know what i'll prefer to just be behind the cameras and direct and everything but acting if you see my acting work trust me i think you can i think the, i think it's a nine out of ten you know so wow. yes I think right, yeah, man that's humble he just gave himself <laughs> nine out of ten <laughs> not eight nine uh you said something very interesting you said unhealthy um competition unhealthy environment unhealthy distribution inequity in sorts um I know you guys are all sports fans. I, I myself also enjoy sports. I'm not a fanatic, but I do enjoy sports. Um, there's this huge thing roaming around now because of the lack of diversity in the NFL. Um, I myself kind of shied away from the NFL for a while now because of that lack of diversity, specifically because of what they did when they blacklisted um, Kavanaugh. But um, Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Not Kavanaugh. Yeah, uh, no, Kavanaugh. You gotta cook. <laughs> no, Ka- Kavanaugh got on because of his uh, lack of diversity. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. Ka- Colin Kaepernick. Um, talk to me uh, a little bit about that and also what is you know your pick because I'm pretty sure you guys are probably going to hit one of those Super Bowl parties uh, for that game, which is fast uh, approaching. I think it's, yeah, Sunday. Yeah. Not all at once, everyone. Yeah. So yeah, I'll just jump right in. I, diversity in sports is, of course, a very important issue because we are a multicultural society, and there's nothing that would ex- should exclude someone from participating in sports. Uh, we we have to make a conscious effort to make it more inclusive. And I will say this between for Super Bowl between the Bengals and the and um, the Rams, I couldn't care less. I'm a New York guy, so you know, have at it as far as I'm concerned. All right, Tomas. I and like like you, I've actually stopped watching sports uh, throughout you know throughout the years. Uh, I used to be a huge sports fan all around, uh, football, basketball, baseball, uh, but I do not keep up with it uh, uh, you know as 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 much as I you know used to. Uh, but obviously, right now with uh, the coach that just got fired, um, you know in the NFL, you know when the majority of players are you know black uh and then you know you have less than 10 percent of the coaches uh are people of color then you know that's 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 a problem you know so there's always been a problem uh in the management you know even i don't know too many general managers that are of color in the NFL, you know, if at all, any, or, or, any. I don't think there's any, you know, or any yeah. of the and, major and, sports yeah. leagues. And, and, and so it's like the majority of players that are, you know, out there entertaining everyone, you know, uh, don't have a seat at the table when it comes to the, you know, the administrative uh, part of, uh, you know, the teams. Jason. You know, so equity is really important. Um, and when we look at, so I look at it as a division of labor. And so when you have, um, you know, a majority white ownership, um, and, and then most of the players being black or minority becomes a plantation system again. Right. And so that's the lens that I look at it from. And, you know, the NFLPA or the NFL Players Association, um, you know, they actually have an association that, 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 that advocates for them. And in the instance of Brian Flores and, you know, uh, what his situation that's going on. Uh, the advocacy from the coaches end, um, there isn't as, as well put together group. And so the fact that there is a clash action lawsuit that he is bringing toward the NFL, um, is you know is done rightfully so. I think though, um, at the end of it, what we have to look at is the fact that we need to increase access. And what does access look like? It looks like black and minority folk owning these teams, right? And ultimately, the only way that we're going to get equity across the board is if there are more owners, um, you know, in this. Uh, you know, and my parting word is um, there's a really great uh, sports writer. His name is Dave Zirin. He writes for the Nation. He's been talking about these issues since the late 90s. I urge everyone who listens to this podcast, um, who, who are sports fans, to really check out Dave Zirin. He has his own podcast. It's called The Edge of Sports. Really amazing, cutting edge stuff. Um, and he really gets down deep into the nitty gritty of uh, where politics and sports collide. Sorrel, do you have anything to add? Everybody said uh, the same thing, but as, as, as an immigrant, an African who, didn't, who wasn't used to watching these sports like uh, um, baseball, football and everything, um, the first thing that came to mind when I actually started getting used to it is looking at the image of the sport looking like my society. 
you know the black don't own anything you know it's, it's it's so difficult for us to own anything at all you know just like in in the sports the sports the players entertain the owners are you know other people so um everybody said that i have nothing to add but just saying that even an outsider could see that the image of the sport is the image of the american society it's the same thing really not different all right so gentlemen i thank you dearly for joining us um this podcast as i stated earlier it's shaping up to be the hottest podcast about politics in town what's up 31 what's up s31 um today i was joined by our legislative director from team jackson the office of senator barbara jackson matthew d levy tomas ramos jason and cyril from the oyate group we had also surprisingly we had our first two call-ins into the show Um, by the senator himself and the chief of staff, Joanna Garcia. Um, so it was definitely a very, um, uh, at least I think it was a very enjoyable conversation. I, I, I thank you so much for joining us. I hope you could come back again. We will continue to work together. Um, everyone out there, it was already announced here, March 5th, we have a gun buyback event. Um, the Oyate Group in partnership with our office, in partnership with DA Alvin Bragg's office as well. And also with NYPD, because they were also partnering with us as well, too. It's a collective effort to continue to try to get these guns off our streets because it's killing too many of our young black and brown folks, our working class, you know, kids of working class families, you know, and we have to stop it. Um, but we're also going to continue to work together to bring other efforts that will benefit our communities as well. Um, so... You know, I'll sign off here. Thank you dearly, all of you. Um, any parting words before we leave? No? All right. I think you had enough talking. That's good. I, lo I love these guys. You guys could always come on the show. <laughs> thank you so much for having us. And I think, I think, I think we'll be back because the, the reception was great. All right. I thank you, too. And by reception, he means that we had a lot of good things to yes. eat here. And that's why he wants to come back again. Uh, all right. So thank you so much, folks. Thank you, everyone who's listening to this show. It's a wrap. <laughs>